Please be seated. Good evening to you. Second Chronicles chapter 3. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, men coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles. And if you just get their attention by waving to them, they'll put a Bible in your hands. And then you can listen to the Word of God, but also follow along with your own eyes. Sunday nights we journey through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And sometimes... We even cover a considerable portion of Scripture, and then it's nice for you to be able to read along. We come to chapter 3 here, and Solomon is about to begin what is going to be the single greatest accomplishment of his reign as the king of Israel, the third king of Israel, and that is the building of the temple. And in doing so, he is fulfilling the dream and the desire of his father, who has done everything he could Uh, David, in order to make it possible, Solomon has approached uh, Hiram, the king of Tyre, about uh, a craftsman who is skilled in wood and metal and stone and all of the things that would be required for the building of the temple. The king of Tyre had just such a craftsman that he made available his own personal craftsman to Solomon for the building of the temple. He also, Solomon had acquired by this point now all of the wood that would be required, cedars of Lebanon, and then also had organized his labor force from uh, among uh, the aliens, among the children of Israel, in order to now start the project in earnest. And so this is what we have as we begin in chapter 3. Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And so Mount Moriah is where the temple was located. It was a uh, where it was built. That was a site that was chosen by God. You wonder why was the temple located there? God chose that. And Revelation to David is that Mount Moriah is a site of uh, considerable Um, significance in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is the location where God had called Abraham to offer his son Isaac uh, to him, knowing that he was not going to require that of him, but just as a test of his heart that occurred on Mount Moriah. The Lord stopped uh, stopped Abraham from offering Isaac and uh, in, in the words of Isaac related to the whole, uh, or in the words of Abraham related to the whole thing, he gave one of the great names to God in the Old Testament there. He said, uh, my God shall provide himself, Jehovah Jireh, he shall provide himself a sacrifice. And uh, God provided an animal to be sacrificed in the place of Isaac. And it was all a, a picture of the day that Fast-forwarding several thousand years that Jesus would be crucified in that very same Mount Moriah. We remember that David, when that great plague came upon the nation of Israel and had, uh, its focus was moving toward Jerusalem, that because of this plague of his numbering of the people, disobedience on David's part, but also some kind of an unmentioned sin among the people of God, God was judging the sin of the nation. And that plague was stopped by virtue of David offering a sacrifice there at the, at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, the same place 
that the temple was uh, going to be built now by Solomon. In other words, God wanted the location of the temple to be forever associated in the minds of the children of Israel that this temple is located at a site where a great plague was stopped on the basis of a sacrifice that was offered. So you fast forward a thousand years from the time of David on that same Mount Moriah, just a a few hundred yards or a hundred yards north of the location of the temple was where Jesus was crucified and where the greater plague, the plague of sin in human history and in the human condition was uh, brought to a stop, so to speak, by the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross for all that would put their faith in him. So the whole interconnectedness of all of this, it's it's wonderful, I think, that when we um, become Christians, how often we can look back upon our Christian lives and see how God has been at work in our lives for so long and with such detail that we didn't recognize. And it's the same thing with the scriptures here. God was in Abraham, in David here, merely putting types and shadows together of the single great event that would occur at Mount Moriah, the crucifixion of our Savior there for the forgiveness of our sins. And so uh, he, uh, that was the, he began to build the house there, and he began to build on the second day of the second month uh, in the fourth year of his reign. So it took him a little while to clean up some of the business that he had to clean up, take care of making these arrangements for labor and, and uh, all of the materials that he would need and all take care of some problems within the kingdom. And so this is the date that was started, uh, and we know it to be 966 uh, B.C. And this is the foundation. Now, here's a description of the temple and its construction. Those of you who are in construction, you're going to love this. And those of you who aren't, you're going to love this. This is the foundation which Solomon laid for the building of the house of God, the temple. The length was 60 cubits by cubits according to the former measure, and the width 20 cubits. Now, cubit uh, is about 18 inches uh, in length. We go by feet and we go by yards. We don't really use something in between. But in the ancient world, they considered a cubit to be whatever the distance was from the elbow to the tip of uh, the longest finger. That was a cubit. And so, in general population, that's about 18 inches. And so, here we have a building The entire temple as a whole, uh, 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, just uh, 2,700 feet in size. So sometimes people think about, you know, Solomon's temple as being like this gigantic thing, you know, uh, overlooking Big Sur or something, you know, uh, relatively uh, small. Uh, One of the reasons for it being smaller, I mean, it's much smaller than this room. And one of the reasons for it being a little bit smaller is the fact that uh, it was not an assembly site for God's people. It was where sacrifices were offered to the Lord, the assembling together by the Jewish people at the feasts and other days and all. That was a great courtyard that was associated 
with the temple, but it didn't have to house all of the people coming in. So tremendous savings in terms of uh, construction. But that was the focus. It wasn't there didn't have to be seating or any of these kind of things uh, for a, a large group of people. So very small, very compact uh, and, and what it lacked in size, so to speak, it certainly made up for uh, a beauty. So this was the size of it. It also had at verse four a vestibule. Uh, that was in front of the sanctuary. It was 20 cubits long, 30 feet long across the width of the house, and the height was 120, and Solomon overlaid the inside with pure gold. And so let's put that thing up there that you guys have your little um, daily uh, layout of, uh, of it. So you've got the vestibule. Uh, there it is. Uh, just a kind of a porch and entryway so that uh, as you would come from the outside in, it was just a transition uh, place for the outside then into the holy place. And so this was built off the front. But even though it was kind of an entryway, Solomon overlaid it, the inside with gold. The larger room known as uh, the holy place, he, uh, and it's important to understand, some of you know this, some of you don't, but uh, as you would come in from the outside through the porch, this is, as you see here, the holy place. This is where the priests would come in and they would offer incense here on the altar of incense. They would keep the, the uh, lamps lit for the menorahs or the lampstands in this area. So in the sh- altar, uh, the tables of showbread were there offered to the Lord. And so lots of priestly activity in this room and then through this particular opening, a curtain into the Holy of Holies. That room was only entered into one day out of the whole year and only by the high priest. So you see how compact this is. It's 30 feet by 30 feet and uh, 30 uh, and then 30 feet high. So absolutely a perfect cube. And then the holy place was about double its size. So it gives you an idea when we talk about and you always talking about the holy of holies why is what's the difference between the holy place and the holy of holies well that's the difference and that would be the layout and uh why a small group would go in here only one man once a year and only after he had offered a sacrifice for a sin could go into the holy of holies because the ark was located there and that represented the presence of god and so we'll we'll refer to this and uh, but it gives so we're talking about this holy place he paneled with cypress which he then overlaid with fine gold and he carved palm trees and chain work on it and he decorated the house with precious stones for beauty and the gold was from parvaim and so we don't really know where parvaim is but apparently the greatest gold in the world was coming out of that place and solomon used it for uh, the temple. And so he overlaid the house with gold. Uh, so he got this beautiful paneling. Remember, the outside is made completely of stone, a Jerusalem stone, kind of a limestone. And then you'd come inside covered with paneling and then that paneling covered with gold. You would just see this gigantic wall of gold. He overlaid the house, the beams, the doorposts, its walls and doors with gold. And he carved cherubim 
on the walls. And so there was the precious stones with it were then embedded in some probably some very beautiful artistic way into the gold to just uh, speak of the beauty of God. And, uh, and and then the carved cherubim would be on the walls. We're going to see a lot of the use of angels in terms of imagery in, in the temple here and all of it speaking of this temple representing the presence of God, representing heaven. And then these angels representing the activity, their activity in the heavenly scene. So uh, and uh, and and from the layout of all of this, as we'll see, uh, they were uh, very, very uh, they're very, very active uh, in in heaven. And so all of this um, uh, gold and beautiful carved cherubim on the walls. And he also then made the most holy place. Speaking of the holy of holies, its length was according to the width of the house, 20 cubits, 30 feet. Its width, 20 cubits, 30 feet. He overlaid it with 600 talents of fine gold, 23 tons at $1,500 an ounce. Last I checked, 23 tons of gold just in the Holy of Holies, not in the vestibule, not in the holy place, not anywhere else. So you think about when God speaks, it's a a beautiful thing to realize about our Christian lives. All of this is a picture of Christ, but it's also a picture of. Of the things that we have in Christ Jesus and this covenant that we have with Christ that Old Testament saints uh, not only could only dream of, but never could have even dreamed of. The Bible declares that you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit and the Old Testament, the, the presence of God was represented by the ark of the covenant. That Ark of the Covenant was put in the Holy of Holies. When the Bible declares that you and I are the whole, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the word that is used for temple in the temple of the Holy Spirit is a word that refers to the Holy of Holies. We are the Holy of Holies for God in this world. And the reason that we are is because The Holy Spirit has come into our lives and everywhere we go in this world, we take the presence of God, the Holy Spirit with us in this world. And so you look and and of course, the gold, the amount of gold that was used in the building of the temple, of course, gold symbolized um, uh, royalty. It symbolized uh, being a king, that kind of wealth. So there's a great amount of gold that is used in the building of this temple, not to be um, flashy about it, but to honor the Lord. And so all of this gold spoke of the fact that we know you to be a great king, the king of kings and Lord of lords. We honor you as the great king that you are. Uh, Cypress isn't good enough for you. Paneling, gold is what we want to offer to you. And so this was the attitude of Solomon and the people in building it was to honor the Lord. Now, you look at our lives as Christians and now in the whole imagery. And and one of the interesting things about the temple is when you came to the temple on the outside, it wasn't that attractive. It meant a lot to the Jewish people because it was the temple, but it was just stone. And, And so it looked like the stone everywhere else in Jerusalem. 
But you only could appreciate the beauty of the temple as you would go inside of the temple and then see all of this gold. You look at our lives as Christians. We're pretty plain looking. You just look like everybody else in the world, right? But then you go inside in a life that's yielded to God. And you take and you get a glimpse at the inside of a life that the Holy Spirit is getting to work on. And you see character being developed in that life. You see nobleness and virtue and beauty and Christ-likeness being built into that life that is more valuable than all of the gold that was put on the inside of that temple. When Paul writes and he declares to the Ephesian church that we are God's workmanship, we are his poema, we are his work of art, he's not kidding. But it has nothing to do with hair, it has nothing to do with beards, it has nothing to do with clothes or shoes or glasses or Botox or whatever. You know, that the world is so enamored with. It has to do with the beauty of what he's building into our lives. It's priceless. You know, the amazing thing to me, the longer I walk with the Lord, is to realize, and, and here I am, I'm, I'm just a small fish like everybody else in the world, and, but I, I look at how diligently he works every day to build the character of his son into my life. And I notice it. I notice how much time, how much effort, how much, uh, how many, how great lengths he goes to to do that. And I'm just one guy among how many millions and millions and millions of, of people that know him in this world. And you look at saints where God has built his character, his godly character, this Christ-like beauty into their lives for decades and decades and decades and decades. And then they die and they go to heaven and that entire investment is lost in terms of it continuing in the human condition. And now that relationship with God continues in heaven. And God doesn't even look and say, oh, 75 years I invested in the 85 years of their life and all of it's lost in a blink. He just loved it, do what he had to do, infinite resources to build that into a human life and then to continue to do that in the next generation and the next generation. It's an awesome thing what God is doing in our lives. It's an amazing thing to be a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a priceless thing that that God is doing in our lives. Now, you can imagine shifting gears here a little bit later on when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem and then took the temple. I mean, when they saw all of that gold. I mean, they just 23 tons of gold in the ancient world in the Holy of Holies alone. I mean, they just could hardly believe it. And they begin to strip away all of that wealth and all of that gold and took it off to Babylon. The sin of God's people that allowed all of that to be made vulnerable. The fascinating thing to me is that when... Long before the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem and then took the temple and stripped it of its wealth. They did it in a progression of three conquests of Jerusalem. Long before that happened, God left the temple. The book of Ezekiel speaks of the fact that Israel's sin had become so great 
that God looked at it and said, it's a beautiful building, the gold I, I see. I see the worship. I see the faith. I, I, I see the reverence for me from a prior generation, but I don't see it in this generation. And despite all of the beauty of that building, where it records that the Holy Spirit, the glory of the Lord, left that temple, departed out into the wilderness over the Mount of Olives. The Lord looked at it and he said, for all of that wealth, all of that beauty, all of that everything, if it isn't coupled with obedience, it brings me no pleasure at all. And so here is this, uh, just the amazing wealth that's built into all of it, but speaking in a very personal way to the priceless thing that God is doing in our lives. You believe what God is doing in your life is priceless. I believe it for you if you don't, but I know that you do. And so overlaid the entire area uh, inside with gold. The weight of the nails was 50 shekels of gold. Of course, you can't really drive a gold nail. So these were uh, nails that were used and then covered with gold. And he overlaid the entire upper area, the ceiling area with gold as well. And in the most holy place, he made two cherubim, again, the angels, fashioned by carving and overlaid them with gold. The wings of the cherubim were 20 cubits in overall length. One wing of the one cherub was five cubits touching the wall of the room. The other wing of that same angel was five cubits touching the wing of the other cherub. One wing of the other cherub was five cubits touching the wall of the room. And the other also was five cubits touching the wing of the other cherub. So let's put that picture back up for me again. I'm just addicted to this. I feel like I'm on television or something. Let's put, if we can put the layout out uh, first. So the... Uh, cherubim that were, were placed at its describing is when you walked into the Holy of Holies, the entire 30 foot length of this back wall was dominated by two angels uh, carved in and covered with gold. And there there uh, five cubits, another five cubits halfway, one angel over here, its wings touching the wings of the other angel all the way across. I mean, just this amazing, awesome uh, realization of of the angelic activity in heaven. And then those angels were looking down upon the ark, the presence of God. And so all of it, a picture of, uh, again, heaven, the great attention given to God in heaven by these servants known as angels. And, and you walk into that room and they're just gigantic against that back wall as you would walk in, reminding you this is a, a, a type or a picture of heaven. You know, you read the book of Revelation. One of the things I love about the book of Revelation is just the description of the angels in there. You got, you know, one angel whose foot is on the land and another, and his other foot is on the sea and an angel standing in the sun. And I mean, these, these creatures are really amazing. And uh, so here they are represented in, uh, in that holy of holies. And then he made the veil and uh, the veil uh, separated the, um, uh, let's see here. Oh, there's the right button. So here's the, here's the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies right there. And so that's what he's describing here. And the veil was made of blue and purple, crimson and fine linen 
and wove cherubim into it. Again, all of it a picture of Jesus. And so the blue speaking of heaven, the heaven that Jesus had come from and into this world to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. You've got the purple, which is the color of royalty, uh, speaking of his, the fact that he is a king, the king of kings and lord of lords, the crimson uh, in that veil, speaking of his sacrifice upon the cross uh, for us, the fine linen, which would be a white linen, speaking of his righteousness, his perfect righteousness and sinlessness, uh, and, and allowing him to be uh, that sacrifice for our sins, and then the cherubim woven into all of it. And so, uh, that veil speaking of this um, uh, the, uh, speaking of the Lord Jesus and then and placed here between the holy place and the holy of holies. You could only get into the presence of God uh, by going through that veil, by going through Jesus. Uh, uh, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, singular, the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And all of it was pictured in the Old Testament. There was only one way, and that was through that veil that spoke of Christ. And, and that is uh, and speaking of the fact that he alone gives us access to intimacy with God, the presence of God. And that's why following Jesus' crucifixion, God the Father rent the veil. He tore it from top to bottom in Herod's temple. And it was a symbol, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us, of Jesus' body being torn on the cross in order to provide us with any time, any day, uh, access to God the Father, which is our relationship with him today as Christians because of Jesus. Now you think about this, and of course we're used to this. We're Christians, and, and we're used to the fact that, all right, you're a Christian, and Jesus has done this for me, and I have access to him. I can pray to him any time I want, day or night. I can pray to him anywhere. My prayers are equally powerful, whether I'm praying in Pakistan or Buenos Aires or in Modesto, California, it's the, the reception is just as good with him. He's just as present everywhere in the world. But for the Jewish mind, um, when that veil was torn and then this great revelation that access to God, this kind of intimacy with God that only one man could have on only one day out of the year to as a, an reinforcement of the idea of how holy God is and then for that that veil to be torn, indicating that this is the kind of access that we have because of Jesus' sacrifice. Just amazing. Isn't it great to wake up in the middle of the night? And it isn't. Uh, but, and uh, God bless you when you're younger and you sleep all the way through the night. Night after night after night after night. And you think this is normal. And uh, one day it won't be that way necessarily. But you wake up in the middle of the night, and in an instant, you can commune with God. You can talk with Him. Or sometimes when you get sick, you get the flu or some kind of a deal, and just, ugh, it's miserable. For me, it's always just close the door, leave me alone, and uh, I'll see you when this is over with. But in that time of just coming in and out of this fog or whatever it might be, and uh, being able to just talk to him, just to say his name, just to fellowship with him, that amazing access that we have. And uh, it, it really is. It's one of the things that makes us rich in, in, in ways that are 
beyond description, what we are because of Christ and what we have because of him. And also verse 15, uh, this is a good time to put that next picture up. He made in front of the temple two pillars, 35 cubits high, so 52 and a half feet high. And uh, the capital that was on the top of each of them was five cubits. He made wreaths of chain work as in the inner sanctuary, put them on the top of the pillars, and he made 100 pomegranates and put them on wreaths of the chain work. So they're very ornate, very beautiful. And then he set up the pillars before the temple, one on the right hand and the other on the left, and he called the name of the one on the right hand, um, uh, Jason, and the name of the one on the left, Boaz. And so these two great pillars that were put uh, there uh, in place and as the people they had no kind of uh, function in terms of structural for for the temple at all it was just that every time people came to the temple God wanted them as he would look at those two great pillars to be reminded of of the fact that their security and their strength is found in him so they'd see the, they'd look at the names they knew the names of those pillars and it would be a reminder my security and my strength is in the lord you believe that our security in this world is in the lord and our strength is in the lord and the lord wanted them to know that we aren't being boastful we aren't being presumptuous when we believe that about our god he is our strength and and he is our security and he will keep us established even in the wackiness of this world. And so uh, the, the description of the beauty here of that temple. Then in chapter four, the description moves to the inside uh, of of the temple, the furnishings that were located there and and uh, and the preparation of those furnishings for the inside of the temple. And so he begins with a description of the bronze altar. It was 20 cubits was its length, 20 cubits its width and 10 cubits was its height. So 30 feet by 30 feet and 15 feet high. So the brazen altar was the place where the sacrifices were offered uh, under the Old Testament covenant. And so where animals were sacrificed, where they were uh, burnt on that altar after they had already been killed and sacrificed. And so you had uh, sin offerings that would be offered there, burnt offerings. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, it's called the altar of burnt offering because a burnt offering was offered to the Lord both morning and evening of every day by the Jews. And so that was the most frequent offering, the offering of, uh, of consecration to the Lord. Uh, meal offerings would be offered to the Lord there. And so this great altar and uh, just kind of like a gigantic Weber barbecue, <laughs> but very beautiful and very ornate. It was placed, uh, again, if we get that picture of that whole layout uh, back up there. Am I getting gray? Uh, okay, just see. Let's get, okay. So there you've got the bronze altar right here and the two pillars that are located on. You could not enter into the temple uh, without going past the bronze altar. And what the placement, the placement of the bronze altar is significant to the Lord also. And what he was communicating is there is no access to God independent of sacrifice. You cannot come into this building. You cannot have a relationship with me independent 
of sacrifice. Again, all of it a picture of Jesus who would be sacrificed for the forgiveness of our sins. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices provided a kind of temporary covering for sin. In the New Testament, Jesus' sacrifice provides us with a cleansing, a washing away of sin. This is very significant, I think, uh, in the world today. Um, People, as time goes on, certainly in my lifetime, people are not taking sin seriously. So as one generation after another slips into greater and greater sin, greater and greater acceptance of sin, then the definitions of sin in terms of the culture, not God, they change. And then pretty soon people aren't willing to call anything sin at all. So their disorders or their diseases or the, you know, or we'll just simply rename uh, the sins. And so homosexuality becomes the gay lifestyle. Fornication begin, becomes living together. Uh, uh, um, adultery becomes an affair, you know, these kind of renamings to soften the sin and move them away from the strength of how God sees sin and defines sin. And so you you see this uh, moving away from a a strong understanding of sin and the altar reminded them of uh, them of the seriousness of sin and that we cannot access God apart from sacrifice. One of the reasons that this is important today and will be important as days go on, apart from a great revival of the Holy Spirit in the world today, is it's important for people to realize I can't have a relationship with God apart from sacrifice. I cannot have from Old Testament, New Testament. I cannot have a relationship with God. I cannot have intimacy with God apart from a, a sacrifice, apart from Jesus, a sacrifice and my faith in that sacrifice. Sacrifice. So you have all kinds of people believing today, and some, and there may be some in our room, in the room here today. I don't say it to scorn you or to mock you, but because it's the way the, the culture fashions us. But the idea that all of us can have a relationship with God on our own terms. So I don't need a sacrifice. I don't need to believe in Jesus. I can believe in any religion that I want, or no religion at all, and God has to accept me. And I can ignore sacrifice, I can ignore his son, and I can walk into his presence, right into his living room, and have a relationship with him. No, you can't. (laughs) I can take five minutes to say it nice, but we don't have the time. You can't do that. You can't walk into my living room, except on my terms. You don't walk into my living room on your terms. You don't walk into God's living room on your terms. That's, that is an arrogance that is out of control. And it characterizes the world that we live in. To think that I can walk into the presence of God, expect Him to have a relationship with me, ignoring sacrifice. When it's in the book from one end to the other. You don't want to do that. Because there is no relationship with him independent of that sacrifice. And so even the placement of this was important to to remind them of of the importance of sacrifice to relationship. You know, it's interesting that the tabernacle prior to the temple and the temple itself, all of the whole layout was given by God, first to Moses and then related to the temple to David. All, that whole layout was, uh, was given there uh, to them. And all of it is a picture of heaven. 
It's all, it's all a, a physical picture in some way of heaven. And, and here is God saying, you can't even enter into the picture of heaven without sacrifice. You sure can enter into heaven itself apart from sacrifice. And I tell you, I love the strength of it. I'm so sick of weak people today in wishy-washiness and nonsense and back and forth and no stand for truth and no common sense and the whole deal. I love it when God stands up and says, this is the way that it is, and now I'm going to accept that or I'm going to reject that. But I love the fact that he's clear and that he's not fuzzy on these things, and he makes himself clear, but he also makes a way for us to be saved. And so this was the communication of the bronze altar. And then he made the sea of cast bronze, ten cubits from one brim to the other. You see on your diagram where it was uh, located. So uh, ten cubits in its uh, diameter, very, very large uh, sea of, uh, of bronze, great pool that held water. It was completely round. Its height was seven cubits or five cubits, five and a half feet tall. A line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. And under it was the likeness of oxen encircling all around 10 to a cubit. So all around the uh, where you would have the upper lip of it right below the upper lip. Uh, there was these oxen that were kind of engraved all the way around it. And we're told that there were, uh, what is it, uh, 10 to a cubit. So 10 every 18 inches, beautiful ornateness, all the way around the sea. The oxen were cast in two rows when it was cast. And this great uh, sea of cast bronze, it stood on 12 oxen, three looking to the north, three looking toward the south, three looking to the uh, to the west. Uh, three looking to the south, three looking toward the east, and the sea was set on them, and all their back parts pointed inward. And so the twelve oxen represented the twelve tribes of Israel, oxen a symbol of strength, God's strength among the children of Israel as the sea was placed upon them. It was a handbreadth thick, so somewhere between six inches and nine inches thick of bronze. I mean, you, uh, how much did that weigh? Incredible. And the brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. So it wasn't just some kind of thing that they sawed off, you know, on these hard edges. Just beautiful artistry. And it contained 3,000 baths in terms of the amount of water that it could hold. Uh, 17,500 gallons of water is uh, what, uh, what it held. And so the basin was, uh, of water was for the priests to wash uh, themselves, to wash their hands and their feet, to provide kind of a ceremonial cleansing before they put on their holy garments to then serve the Lord there uh, at the temple. And uh, so uh, the symbolism of it is the fact in terms of applying to Aaron and to the priests that, that they needed a ceremonial cleansing. They needed personal purity in order to serve the Lord. No one could approach God without being uh, washed. And so this kind of full body, full immersion washing was only done here once. And then the putting on of the garments to begin their service to the Lord that day. Picture New Testament wise. The Bible declares that you and I are priests in this new covenant. And so we've been uh, we've been saved. We don't have to keep getting saved every day or every week, but we do need to be continually washed. 
And so we don't have a big basin here on the grounds and God calling us to be washed there. Uh, this symbolizes this is a physical symbol of a spiritual washing that God, Jesus would provide for us. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so that uh, the, uh, the uh, sea of bronze speaking of that. And then there were also ten lavers, kind of smaller uh, uh, can, you know, kind of, same kind of concept for washing. Five were put on the right side and five on the left, as you see in your diagram, to wash in them such things as they offered for the burnt offering. They would wash in them, but the sea was for the priest to wash in. And so uh, the law of Moses required that the burnt offering as a part of offering them would be washed in these labors. So they were provided large number of them at the temple. And then he made ten lampstands of gold according to their design. He set them in the temple, five in the right side and five at the left. And so in the tabernacle, there was only one lampstand, one menorah. And this is a menorah that's right behind me uh, on the platform by the, the wall. And, and it was the purpose of the menorah was to provide light in the holy place. And so uh, only one in the tabernacle, God prescribed that there would be 10 in located in uh, in the uh, temple here, we assume that they had the same kind of uh, uh, same characteristics in terms of uh, the three branches that would come out to the side and the one in the middle total of seven, the number of completion and all. And uh, and that these were then placed within the temple, the lampstand. Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world, the only light that was provided. In, in the temple was provided by these, these lampstands. Again, a picture of Jesus. And, and he declared himself to be the light of the world. He provides light, revelation to this world spiritually. To not know Christ, again, this you have from the vantage point of heaven as God looks at us. And the Bible says he, everything, and, and everything is open and naked before him with whom we have to do. And, and he looks at mankind and declares that only Jesus provides us with spiritual light in this world. No other religion can do it. No man-made something can do it. Only Jesus. He alone. I am the singular light of the world, Jesus said. And to not know Christ, to not have a personal relationship with him, is to live in spiritual darkness, emotional darkness, intellectual darkness, and physical darkness. That's just the way that it is. Because God has created us for relationship with Him through His Son. And every, that's why when you, when you, we come to know the Lord one day, we give our life to the Lord and it's like, Boom, all the greens are green or the blues are blue or I mean, everything clicks and makes sense. That whole world crazy, nutty out there. It makes sense to me because now I'm processing it in the light of God's revelation, my own life, the people around me spiritually, how to conduct myself in a safe way in a spiritually dangerous world, emotionally, intellectually, mentally. You look at the price that the world is paying on a mental level for not knowing Christ. 
And, and so all, revela- all light is found in a relationship with him. And so then there were the ten tables and uh, they were made and he placed them in the temple, five on the right side and five on the left. And the ten, again, in the tabernacle, there was only one here. There are ten. Uh, This was known as the table of showbread, where bread was offered uh, to the Lord on the table of showbread uh, each week by the priests. A table in that covenant represented fellowship. Almost all fellowship happened over meal, not with a remote in your hand. Uh, or listening to an iPod or texting. They didn't have any of that. They looked forward to a meal, sitting down with people, a long meal, fellowshipping, that kind of thing. And so these tables represented fellowship with God. And he made 100 bowls uh, of gold for the handling of of the different um, you know, fluids that were used and, and all. There's a better word than fluids, but I can't think of it. But uh, in terms of, of the worship of the Lord. And therefore he made the court of the priests and the great court of the door. Let's, see, let's start again. Verse 9. Therefore he made the court of the priests and the great court and doors for the court. And he overlaid these doors with bronze and he set the sea on the right side toward the southeast. So there were two courtyards that were associated with the, te- with the temple, a courtyard that was built for the priests, kind of a smaller courtyard, intimate, close to the temple. And then there was a wall that was built and then a, a much larger courtyard that was built for the people to come together and assemble on these special occasions to worship the Lord. And so that C, verse 10, uh, was set on the right side toward the southeast And then Hiram made the pots and the shovels and the bowls. And so Hiram uh, finished doing the work that was uh, that he was to do for King Solomon for the house of God. Two pillars and the bowl shaped capitals that were on top of the two pillars, the two networks covering the two bowl shaped capitals that were on the top of the pillars, 400 pomegranates. Now, this doesn't mean anything to you, but if you made them. And it was check, check, check. Hey, you want people to know about it. So this guy did good work. And not only that, he finished his work. I'm not going to get into all that. But it's nice to have someone who's skilled who also finishes what they begin. Four, 400 pomegranates for the two networks. Two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that are on the pillars. And he also made carts and lavers. On the carts, one sea, twelve oxen under it, also the pots and shovels, the forks, and all of their articles, Hurum, his master craftsman, made of burnished bronze for King David, for the house of, of King Solomon, for the house of the Lord. In the plain of Jordan, the king had them cast, all of this that was done in bronze and clay molds, uh, between Succoth and Zeradah. And so uh, today they have located what they believe to be the site for the casting of all of that that bronze as as an archaeological find uh, in Israel. And Solomon had all of these articles made with in such great abundance that the weight of the bronze was not determined. No scale could, uh, you know, measure all of that. And thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of God, the altar of gold, the tables on which was the showbread, 
the lampstands with their lamps of pure gold to burn in the prescribed manner in front of the inner sanctuary with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, of purest gold, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, and the censers of pure gold. As for the entry of the sanctuary, its inner doors to the most holy place, and the doors of the main hall of the temple were gold. And so the completion of the temple itself and the completion of all of, uh, of the furnishings there. Apparently in Solomon's temple, the uh, opening between the holy place and the holy of holies, there was a curtain, but also included apparently were some doors that could be closed as well. So uh, probably kept open most of the time. But why, why that was added to that, we don't uh, really know. So we look at all of this, and one of the things that you know, I think of related to this before we uh, you know, close up our evening, and, and I realize that this section of things is a review from all the way back to the time of Moses. And and, uh, so much of this God had commanded to Moses. And then we saw some of it again in First Kings, the the type, the picture that all of this is of Christ. But when we leave Second Chronicles here, we will leave this for a very, very long time in terms of this kind of depth of seeing Christ in all of this. And so um, if for no one else but myself, but I know for a larger group than that, Um, I really uh, savor the opportunity to think one more time of the beauty of how all of this speaks of Jesus and how God was preparing a people in a world for the Savior that he would send into this world. The other thing that it makes me realize is I look at the buildings and the furnishings and the priests and the garments and the offerings and everything and and all of it, again, important, speaking of Christ, all of it fulfilled, not in three people, not in ten people, but fulfilled in one person, Jesus, the Savior of the world. And I look at all that they went through to have a relationship with God and intimacy with God, and I think to myself, is anyone else thankful for Jesus (laughs) and how simple he has made it for us? And it's important for us as Christians. And I think it's one of the things I don't think that you can have a full appreciation for Jesus independent of some knowledge of the Old Testament, because otherwise we just would tend to take all of it just for granted. But when we see all that they went through just to have their sins covered, not washed away, just to. Worship God from this distance, not to be the holy of holies itself and to realize this is all ours, all ours because of Christ. And it makes us love him all the more. Well, let's stop there this evening and let's ask the worship team to come up this evening and lead us in just a bit more worship uh, before we close out this evening in prayer. <clears throat>